0: Welcome to the
1: Equal Parts Podcast, brought to you by Care at Work. Being a working parent is hard, but policing your kids' internet use, social media feeds, and screen time, well, that can feel like a full-time job all on its own. What if there was a better way, a way that we could teach our kids to be responsible digital citizens and use technology for good? That's Richard Collada's lifelong mission. He's the father of four and was appointed by President Obama as the Director of the Office of Educational Technology for the U.S. Department of Education. Today, Richard's the CEO of the International Society for Technology and Education, a nonprofit that serves education leaders in more than 100 countries across the globe. Richard joins me to talk about his new book, Digital for Good, raising kids to thrive in an online world. He shares a framework for parents on how to help and encourage our children to become healthy and responsible digital citizens and use technology for good, all while avoiding the bad. Have a listen. But before you do, I have a show update to share. Equal Parts will be taking a little summer vacation and I'm stepping down as host of the show but don't worry. We'll be back in the fall with amazing new episodes and some very special guests that I know you'll love. It's truly been an honor and a pleasure to go on this journey with you. I've personally learned so much, and I hope you have too. Thank you for listening and supporting the show. Richard, thank you so much for being here today, and thanks for joining Equal Parts.
0: It's such an honor to be part of your show. I'm glad to be here.
1: So I can't speak for all parents, but I know that with my 10 and 11-year-old, technology and screen time are ongoing battles that we're having in my house. In your book, you talk about a thesis that our problem isn't the technology, it's that we haven't established the right expectations for participation in the digital world. Can you share what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so it's such an important nuance to, to make here. And I and by the way, I'm dealing with this too. I, I have four kids all in this age and, and it's a constant adjustment and repositioning, right? To try to find the right balance. But the thing that I wanna make clear and that I try to make clear in the book is that it's not about Technology itself. Technology is is neutral. Technology is, it's like a hammer. You can use it to build great things, you can use it to smash things apart. (laughs) And so, so what we need to do is we need to be changing our narrative around the technology culture that we're creating in our families and, and have it be less about using technology or not and more about how are we using technology? What are we doing with the technology? Who are we using it with? That's the shift that we have to start to make if we want to create a a healthy culture for tech use in our lives.
1: You call out four digital dysfunctions that really are detrimental to our kids and society. Can you talk through some of those and what some of the dangers are that they pose?
0: One of them is the fact that we have become very complacent with living in a digital world and allowing our kids to live in a digital world that is primarily funded by ads. And these aren't like the old school, you know, Crystal Pepsi ads that we watched on TV, right? These are ads that are using data to target selling to our kids. And that's that's a problem if we don't understand what's happening. If we know what it is and we know what's going on and we teach what's going on, it can work. But when we don't understand that we are basically selling our kids, uh, you know, giving our kids data to make some money for somebody else, like that's a dysfunction that we need to deal with. Another is, you know, we, we, you hear we have this ongoing issue of what I call digital exploitation, right? Sometimes we call it cyberbullying. It's it's just being mean to people in virtual spaces. And then another one that I talk about is that if we are not using technology effectively, it can skew our perception of reality. And so we have this very personalized digital world that we live in, and what it means is it can reinforce our own beliefs to a point that we feel like everybody around us believes what we believe. And that's very dangerous because it makes it seem like somehow uh, we're, we're always right. It fuels this kind of perpetual rightness.
1: And that can particularly be hard on young girls, right? I would say young girls and
0: young boys, it just manifests itself in in different ways. But again, it's this idea that like we are, you know, whatever we think and believe is the right thing. And so then when we encounter somebody in a virtual space or a physical space that doesn't believe what we believe, which of course is most of the world on any given issue, it feels so foreign because we don't know how to even connect. It's like we can't even sync up to have the conversation because we have no practice being exposed to ideas that are different than ours if we just allow this dysfunction of only listening to the things that social media and algorithm-based sites provide us.
1: Right. It still freaks me out when I am talking to my husband about something and then the next minute I see an ad pop up on Facebook about that topic. It just doesn't feel right somehow. If that information that popped up about the topic were
0: information that said, hey, here's some other ways that you could think about this, that actually could be very healthy. The dysfunctional part is when it comes back and says, what you were talking about, you're right, and here's a bunch more things that reinforce your rightness. That's the part that's so dangerous because it actually erodes our ability to have conversations with people who think differently than us.
1: And I know I try really hard to teach my kids how to use technology responsibly, but despite all of my most well-intentioned efforts, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners can relate to this, we're probably going about this in the wrong way. So as the expert here, can you share some of the common mistakes that you've seen and how can we make it better?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, we all need to just breathe and just realize that this is a tough process and it takes time to get right nobody should beat themselves up over it you know we just need to kind of relax a little bit and my book one of the things i love about what you know ended up coming out in the book is It's a very positive view on it. Now, I'm not avoiding these these dysfunctions that we talk about. We're really clear about dangers that are there. There's no rose-colored glasses. But it turns out that this narrative that we've been using for a long time, this very negative narrative, actually in some ways is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I talked to parents and teachers and education leaders and policymakers around the world. And one of the things that I saw was these common threads of the conversation that are not helpful. And I'm going to share them with you now. One of them is we tend to immediately present all of the things not to do with technology. It's the list of don'ts. You know, don't share your password. Don't be mean online. Don't post an inappropriate picture. Don't, 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 don't. The problem is... You can't practice not doing something. And being an effective digital citizen takes practice. These are not easy skills. And you know, I think about my, my kids play the piano, and you know, there's no way that they could become good pianists by just being told every week, here's all the notes not to play. At some point you have to say, here are the notes to play. Here's what we want you to actually do. And so we have to flip that, that narrative away from the list of don'ts to what we actually want our kids to do and be when they are in a virtual space.
1: I love that concept of being a good digital citizen. I hadn't heard that before, and I just think that's a fantastic way to look at it. Can you share some of the creative techniques that we as parents can use to reframe our thinking about screen time and teaching our kids to have this healthy digital balance?
0: Here are a couple thoughts, and many, many more that I include in the book. But here are a couple thoughts. One of them is to be very cautious of the tools that we use to try to find balance. I have a whole chapter in the book about finding balance, and one of the things that I hear a lot is this use of, of screen time limits as the way to find balance. And I know it comes from a good place. I know that is you know it's, it's wanting to not have uh, our kids sitting in their room playing on on a game you know for all of their whole life. I get that, but the problem is, first of all. The whole concept of screen time is problematic because it communicates to kids that all digital activities have the same value and nothing could be farther from the truth. Every digital activity, there are some that are activities that we could do almost without limit, reading and learning and connecting with a family member or learning a a new language or, or, or a new skill, right? Those are all digital activities. There are also digital activities that I think we could agree have very little value you know, playing Candy Crush for hours on end or whatever game, you know, is that...
1: Guilty. Guilty.
0: Yeah, you're right. You know, welcome to the club. We all are, right? This is something we all are. But but this idea of, of screen time and saying, okay, we're going to, you can use your device sort of unlimited for the next hour before dinner, right? That is not a helpful way to prepare kids to thrive in a digital world because what they have to learn is that some activities, again, have more value than others. And to give you a real practical way to think about this, I like to tell parents, think about this the same way you think about getting your kids to eat in a healthy way. You don't have food time. It's not like, okay, it's five o'clock. You have an hour of food time. You can eat whatever you want. You can eat vegetables or you could just eat Twinkies for the next hour. But then when food time is over, we're going to stop. No, of course not. We teach there are some foods that you can eat all the time, fruits, vegetables. We can drink water all the time. There's certain times of the day where it's appropriate to have a big meal, and then sometimes we eat some snacks and we eat some (laughs) Twinkies and some Doritos, but those happen interspersed throughout other moments of the day, and they generally happen after we've eaten healthy foods. That sets in their minds this idea that all food is not created equal, and when they leave our house, they've left understanding how to make those decisions for themselves, If we do screen time, (laughs) we are taking away their ability to recognize the difference between valuable and not valuable activities in a virtual space.
1: So not all screen time is created equal, is what you're saying. That's right, and that's the conversation we have to have. And so what we do is we talk, and I
0: recommend that parents talk to their kids about what apps and what activities are worth your time. Are you getting a good return on the investment (laughs) for this app. And for, for young kids, you could talk about, you know, if somebody comes up and says, I'll give you a dollar for your bike, you'd say, no way, of course not. Why? Because that dollar is not a good exchange for the value they're getting for your bike. Well, it's the same thing when you're talking about your use of technology. Is the activity that you're spending hours on worth your valuable time? And if not, then let's talk about some other types of activities you can do in a digital space.
1: So you have four kids. I think you said they were ranging from preteens to teens. What are some of the good digital activities that they've been leaning into lately?
0: We have a thing called device use agreements. So we, we actually have an agreement, a contract that we sign with our kids when they are using a device and our internet. And one of the things that we include in that is a request that the devices be used to capture family moments. We really encourage our kids to use tech that brings out the creative side in them, right? There's some great apps for making music and making videos. And you, you don't, it's like you don't even have to be a great musician. They're they're kind of these looping apps where they give you some music and you can loop them and remix them. They're so much fun. They're creative and they're helping reinforce that the technology that that our kids have in their hands are tools that can be used to create and design and build, not just passively receive information.
1: At the end of the year this year, my son shared with us one of those music lyrics that he had made in digital literacy this year. And I was blown away by how the school leveraged technology in their favor this year. It was, it was really impressive. Oh, that's so cool. It's so good to hear. But
0: that's the thing that, that you bring out, which, which is so important, is if we just sort of wait and let our kids find the apps that they're going to use on their own they're unlikely going to find these opportunities to use them in creative ways. They'll do some of that. But one question that, that I think all parents should ask is, how often are we suggesting apps for our kids to try? We do it with books all the time, at least I hope we do. In our family, you know, we say, hey, hey, here's this good book. Do you want to read this book? You know, Especially in those transition years where we're transitioning from like reading picture books to reading more substantial books, we're always trying to suggest books how often have we said, hey, here's an interesting app, you should try it? Because if we're not doing that, then again, we're, we're sort of allowing some other person or or company to influence the choices that our kids are making about how they're using their devices.
1: Most of us can admit that we have a pretty bad addiction when it comes to technology I know I feel guilty about it all the time. I know I'm doing it. I'm consciously doing it. And I just can't stop. So how can we try to be more aware of our own tech and model better behavior for our
0: kids? Yeah, again, so I'm going to push you on that because that was an example of this sort of binary thinking about it, right? So it's like just our use of tech. And so I would push you to say, what is it that you're doing? If you are answering emails all through dinner, that's a problem. That's a problem that you're out of balance. There are times where I'm a little bit late because I'm helping set up meals for somebody in our neighborhood who's very sick. That's a very different use of technology. The problem is we're not overt about that when we talk with our kids. So so one simple thing that parents can do is just say, hey, I'll be right there. We have a blood drive at church this Sunday, and I'm sending out invitations so that people can come. Do you want to come take a look at the invitation and see what you think? So it's just helping them see that this is a really useful, powerful way to use technology. Now, if I'm, again, if I'm sitting there playing your Minesweeper for, uh, I don't know if anybody plays Minesweeper other than me anymore, but you know, (laughs) if I'm sitting there playing a game over and over again, then yes, I may have a balance problem that I have to deal with, but it's that teasing out the different uses of technology and being transparent with our kids that some of our own uses of technology are not really a good use of our time and others really are, but it's not all the same just because it shows up on a screen.
1: So is it too late for some families if they've already sort of dropped the ball a bit on the family's digital culture? Is it too late for them to go back and say, okay, what can I change? How can we learn from this? And what can we do differently?
0: No, not at all. It's never too late. And and in fact, even families who start this right at the beginning constantly need to adapt and adjust as their kids get older, as technology changes. So it's not like if you're coming late to the party here, you're suddenly kind of out, out of luck. But There are some things and there's some tips that I provide in the book specifically to families who maybe have been a little hands off in creating this culture, not very intentional about the digital culture that they're creating in their families to try to help make that transition. And one of the big tips is involve your kids, just involve them in the process, have a conversation with them and say, what are some really good uses of technology that we should care about? What are some things that maybe as a family, we don't want to do? Are there places and times where technology doesn't make sense? We have a, a, a rule in our family, we, and we've done this. We've decided with our kids that anytime we feel like we have to close a door for privacy, technology probably doesn't belong there. If I have to do something private, and, you know, we taught we, we all teach our kids about privacy. You're gonna go change your clothes. You do it behind a closed door, right? We teach that from from young ages. If I'm in a place where I feel like I need that privacy, my device probably should not be there and shouldn't be on because it helps reinforce that idea that nothing that happens on that device is truly private. That's one of the pieces of culture that we kind of built into our family with the input from our kids.
1: Let's talk about privacy and digital privacy for a second. It's a major concern for parents. And so what do we need to be aware of when it comes to personal data that platforms are gathering about our kids? And what can we do to help them stay alert to make sure that they understand the implications of this?
0: It's a great question. And I think one of the things that we need to do, again, is it's not a it's not a negative. It's not a don't ever go to any site and don't ever, you know, share any information. It's having a conversation about when is something that you are going to receive in a digital space worth it enough to provide some of your personal information. And that's going to be different depending on what the information is. If it's an email address, you know, maybe free access to a website that I think is going to be really valuable is, is worth providing an email address. If it's more information than that, then probably not, right? But that's the conversation. And something that we can talk to our kids about is, and it's a good question to ask, which is how is that site being paid for? Good question to ask, or, or an app, right? We, if you have, uh, kids are coming in and asking for an app to be installed on their device, how is the app paid for? Do we pay for it? Is it a subscription? Okay. Is there advertising and viewing those ads is what pays for it? Is it some other information that they're getting from us and then selling to a third party? When we have those conversations with our kids, they become much more aware and alert when they go to a new site about how it is being monetized and therefore know when to have their spidey senses up a little bit higher.
1: As our work worlds have become more digital and we think about the future of work, is digital citizenship something that we should be taking well into adulthood? Oh, 100%. Look, and that's
0: the reason why it matters so much. If we don't get this right, if we can't reset some of these conversations, I really fear for the future of democracy. I really, truly fear that we will be able to maintain a healthy, safe, free society if we don't understand how to uphold these kind of principles of living together in a healthy way when we're in a virtual space. We need to help raise children who can thrive as leaders in a world where most of the most important life interactions that they're going to have are actually going to be happening in digital environments.
1: So if you had to make a prediction about our digital future and what it's going to look like in 10 or 20 years, what do you think it'll look like? And what are you most optimistic about? And what keeps you up at night? Wow.
0: Um, Well, first of all, I will say I am optimistic about the future. I look at the creative, amazing young people that are growing up in this virtual space And I just think, man, if we can just get them the right scaffolding, just just set up the context right for them, they will do amazing things that we just have not been able to do. But it really does depend on how we set them up for success. And so much of that is early on coaching and showing the way technology can be used to enrich our lives, to connect with other people, to find solutions to the world's toughest problems. And if we can just help create that understanding, then I think we will be in really, really great shape down the road. If we can't though, and, and I do wanna be clear about this, if we can't, we will continue to see this disintegration of civil society and we will continue to see an erosion of democracy and an inability to work with people who have differing views and differing beliefs and because of that will not be able to solve the world's tough problems that'll be coming our way.
1: Richard, this advice has been so fantastic. I am absolutely going to be drafting up a digital agreement for our family because it's just so, so important. I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this learned just as much as I did. And so can you share with them where they can learn more about you and your book and all of the incredible work that you do?
0: Absolutely. So my site is innovativelearning.com. And you can find more information about me and the work that we do. I run an, or, an organization called the International Society for Technology and Education. There are links to it. You can get a whole bunch more information there. But also you can find links to the book or you can go to Amazon or any of your favorite bookstores and uh, search for it. Digital for Good is the name of the book, Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World. And it's just a really practical set of guidelines to help create a healthy digital culture in, in our families. And I think if we can leverage these ideas, we'll find balance and just a, a healthier digital environment for our kids to grow up in.
1: Richard, thank you so much for being here and for helping us to raise good digital citizens.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to this
0: episode of Equal Parts. See you next time.
1: Wait, before you go, I just want to tell you a little bit about Care at Work by Care.com. They work with some of the world's largest companies to offer family care benefits to their employees. If you're one of the lucky ones who already has care benefits at work, use them. If you don't, ask for them. It's a real lifesaver. To learn more, visit care.com slash care at work. Again, that's care.com slash care at work.